0: Doing such a great job leading us, despite the sound messing up. Um, six days or six billion years, a real man and woman named Adam and Eve, or archetypes of humanity and life, a magical fruit tree that gives you wisdom, or a conscious choice to dethrone God. Who really cares, right? Like, at the end of the day, you're probably like, I've got bills I can't pay. I've got sick loved ones. I've got relationship problems. Um, Thanks, Alex, for all these messages from Genesis, but this really doesn't help me where I am right now. Um, Maybe you feel that way. Maybe you're watching online, you feel that way. Uh, Or listening to our podcast and you're like, you know, it's great that over the last eight weeks you've been exploring Genesis 1 through 3 and talking about these things. But at the end of the day, how does that affect me where I am right now? Now, I hope that those conversations about Genesis have maybe helped you answer some questions or raise some news questions. Or if you found Genesis to be a barrier between you and the teaching of Jesus, hopefully that helped remove some of those obstacles. But I have to admit, these weren't always some of the most practical messages. But today we're going to talk about something that affects all of us. We're going to talk about sin. Now, you might ask, sin, Alex, how does that help me with the bills I can't pay or my relationship pain or the chaos in my modern life? Uh, One of my seminary professors used to tell me, every problem in in your life is at some level, at its root, a sin problem. Um, Anyone ever feel like you're cursed? You just have one of those days, and you're like, am I cursed today? What happened, like, you lose your job, and then uh, you get a flat tire, or you get a a, a ticket on the way home, you drop your kid's birthday cake, and you're like, what is going on with my life? Um, some people blame God for that. They're like, man, he's just pulling the strings. He's just manipulating my life, bringing misfortune. But today, we're going to look at how I believe the consequences of our individual sin are a curse in our world. And sin always negatively affects our lives and affects the lives of other people. And our lives are affected negatively by the sins of other people in the world. Sin or the consequences of sin are at the root of all the problems in Our world all my problems and all your problems all our personal problems and our problems as a human species and you say Alex like how can that be like uh if there's a bill i can't pay sometimes that's because someone was greedy and raised the price of something to an unrealistic level sometimes it's because i was envious of someone else and i bought something that i really didn't need because i felt like it would bring value to my life Let's look at today's text and begin to break down some of these things about sin and the consequences of sin in our reality. We're in Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 8. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Uh, Just a little side note here. When it says they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, it's literally they heard the wind walking in the garden like that god was walking in the wind it's a very interesting word but moving on to verse 9 so the lord god called out to the man and said to him where are you and he said i heard you in the garden and i was afraid because i'm naked so i hid myself and then he asked who told you you were naked do you eat from the tree that i commanded you not to eat from and the man replied that woman you gave me to be with me she gave me some fruit from the tree and i ate it." And the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate." And so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you're cursed more than any livestock, more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly. You will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and between the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And he said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and you ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust and you will return to... Yeah, it's real exciting, you know, uplifting, hopeful, encouraging passage, right? Um, the first thing we see on display here as a result of their disobedience that we talked about last week is shame. Shame's the first result of sin. In the story previous to this, it kept telling us Adam and Eve were naked. They had nothing to hide from each other. When Darby and I were dating, I kept all my Magic the Gathering cards hidden because I knew once she saw how nerdy I was, she would have broken up with me. And so once we got married, I just pulled out. I was like, I need to tell you something. She's like, what is it? You know, like, are you secretly, you got some dark secrets? I was like, yes, I collect Magic the Gathering cards. You know, Mm -hmm. and she's like, expected me to bring out a few and I just kept bringing out boxes and boxes. And she's like, what have I done? Like, find me a divorce attorney as fast as you can. know but adam and eve they had nothing to hide from each other before this their differences were not opportunities for comparison or for mockery um the tree of knowing good from bad had truly allowed them to see right from wrong and they immediately knew what was wrong themselves because they had just done wrong they were bad as humans we all need to be inspired with the vision of a better future the better person that we could be every healthy human being needs that Um, But shame says you won't ever be anyone. You won't ever be good. You're not good and you're not going anywhere. You deserve bad because you are bad. And I'm sad to say sometimes the church has resorted to using shame to manipulate people. The problem is with that shame can convince people that they're bad. But shame never makes bad people better. Shame doesn't make us good. It eventually convinces us that we can't be good. Shame is a result of sin. It is not a cure for sin. In the midst of our sin and shame, though, in the midst of Adam and Eve's sin and shame, what happens? Yahweh, the one true God, comes looking for them, and he comes looking for us. It says Adam and Eve were ashamed, and they hid. And this is the origin origin of the game hide-and-go-seek. It's not. I was just seeing if you were listening. Um, But they went hiding from God. And I threw up this picture of Sasquatch which has nothing to do with this message and adds zero value to anything I'm about to say. I just really thought it was funny that he's the reigning hideable seek world champion. So getting back to things that actually matter, you can never hide well enough to hide yourself from God's love. He could find even Sasquatch. He comes looking for the shamed and the forsaken, the broken and the bullied. You can't hide from him. And the good news is we don't have to. Because when he shows up, he comes to rescue and to heal, not to crush and destroy. Where are you is what Yahweh asks here. And this is interesting because last week we talked about how the you in that passage was plural. It wasn't Eve talking to the snake. It was Adam and Eve because of the plural you. I said it was more like a y'all. Um, it actually switches back to a singular you in the Hebrew here. And so when God says, where are you? It's singular. It's almost as if the people reading this text, like us, God's looking at us. He's talking to us out of the text, and he's saying, where are you? You and I are hiding, just like Adam and Eve did in our sin and in our shame. And he says, where are you? I want to be near you. I don't want you to hide from me. I want you to know me and be known by me. I want to plant a garden in you and invite you into my community of love. And so God starts asking these questions to Adam and Eve here. He says, what happened? What's going on? Um, and this isn't because God's like oblivious. You know, it's like I just don't know. Like so weird. What happened? Jesus asked questions to people too. Not because he didn't know the answers, but because he wanted people to wrestle with the answers. Many times when we're asking spiritual questions, it's because the spirit is raising questions in us that will lead us to the answer. Um, But instead of wrestling with the reality of what they did, they began making excuses. And you see this year where they just start blaming each other. Um, We still do this today, right? We blame other people for our sin and for the consequences of our sin. Every car accident I'm in and I talk to the insurance company and they're like, sir, you're actually at fault. This is going to come out of your insurance. I'm like, am I though? Because if they hadn't got in their car and got on the road that day, I wouldn't have hit them. So it's kind of their fault for owning a car and getting in their car and driving somewhere. Like, it's really their fault. So, you know, like, it's kind of their fault, not my fault. Um, What is that about human nature that we do that? Um, Sometimes Garvey will open a cupboard in our kitchen and like a dish will just fall out because someone just shoved it in there at an angle where it doesn't belong. And it just stumbles onto the countertop or sometimes the floor and breaks. And uh, she says, Did you put this in here? I'm like, no, your mom, Debbie, did that. Like when she came like over a year ago and she was putting away some dishes, I'm sure that was one that she put away. It's Debbie's fault. Sorry, Debbie. I know you watch online sometimes, so sorry that I throw you under the bus. Um, In Matthew 7, 4, Jesus said, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye." Jesus said that people prefer to look at the tiny issue in someone else's life than deal with the gigantic issues in their own life. That's me every time I comment on a social media post. I'm like, how dare they say it that way? Like, they should have said it the way that I think, and I'm ignoring all my things, and I'm commenting on the small grammatical error that they made. That's sick. That's and we want to avoid what is wrong with us and attack what's wrong with everyone else. Like just get the focus off of my problems, let's focus on everyone else's. We'd rather blame someone else than change our own direction. But to change the world, we have to start changing the only person that we actually can change, which is ourselves. Now, I would love to say that the church doesn't have a problem with this, but we're actually really terrible at this. Modern, yes, modern Americans far away from God do often criticize the hypocrisy in Christians while ignoring their own issues, that's true. But the church also loves to attack modern Americans far away from God while ignoring the issues inside of the church. I think if we spend a lot more time talking about the issues that the modern church has instead of the issues that the modern world has, the church would be better off and the world would be better off. Russell Moore, who's the president at a religious and ethics think tank. He said this, the church, this was him a couple years ago predicting where the church was headed in North America. He says the church will get more vocal about sins that they're not tempted by and it'll get less vocal about sins that do. Isn't that the biggest problem? That Think about your friend, your family member who doesn't want anything to do with God or the Bible or Christianity. What's the big issue? The church talks a lot about sins that aren't their sins. They're someone else's sins. If the church got serious and realistic about their own sins, think how much more compelling our message about Jesus would actually be. Eventually, though, the blame game always get, ends up being God's fault. Notice what the man said here. Well, first of all, the woman blames the say and the man blames the woman, and then he says, oh, By the way, that's the woman that you gave me, God. So if you hadn't given me the woman, if you hadn't got in your car and been on the road that day, I wouldn't have hit you. You know, like, it's your fault, God we still do this same thing. Ultimately, we start to blame God for the bad things in our life. The source of everything good in your life is God, and we start to blame him for everything bad in our life. Everything bad in your life and in my life is a result of sin and the consequences of sin in our world. We brought sin into the world, not God. God brought good into the world. We brought sin. God created us to spread toad, order and beauty throughout the word remember tov is a hebrew word we've been talking about through the series instead we became agents of rot, another hebrew word that we've been talking about that means chaos and disorder if you think about it like this if god is the ceo the owner of the company we're the vps and we have mismanaged the heck out of this company We have mismanaged the heck out of this world. We can't blame the failing stock prices on the CEO when he put us in charge and we tried to cut him off of the board so that he couldn't have any control in the company. Sin means wrong path. There were two paths, one led to the tree of life, and we took the other one. We took the path leading to death. See, sin is really, if we want to define it, it is when we do the opposite of what we were created to do. It is when we do something selfish and destructive that hurts ourselves or hurts others or hurts the world. Now, a modern Westerner who wants nothing to do with God, who's not spiritual or religious at all, they'll agree that we shouldn't hurt others, right? That's just a common understanding in our culture. That's a good thing. I'm glad that we feel that way. But God takes it a step farther. He claims that when we do something to hurt ourselves, it also affects all of us. Sometimes people will say like, well, what I'm doing is not hurting anyone. It's just it's just my thing, right? Every single sin can change the world. The ripples from my selfish, destructive behaviors make meta- metaphorical waves that crash across the shores on the other side of the world. I think as humans, we're way more connected than we completely understand. So what does God do as a result of all this? The first thing he does is curses the snake. Now, I remember sitting in church... As a kid, and a pastor saying, Pastors say some dumb things, okay? And it's funny as a kid, the things that stick with you, it's never the good things they said, it's always the dumb things. Like, I remember this one pastor, he preached a whole sermon on how the Simpsons are terrible and you should watch them. As a kid, I was immediately like, I gotta check out the Simpsons. Thing. This sounds amazing, you know? Um, but I had a pastor tell me as a kid, he stood up in a pulpit and uh, way to miss the point of this passage, and he was like, Sex used to have less. You see the curse God put on snakes, he's like, they're gonna be in the dust, they're gonna be on their belly. So snakes obviously used to have legs, and God's curse made them lose their legs. And so as a kid, you know, I'm like eight years old, first time in church with my mom, and uh, I remember thinking, so snakes used to be lizards? Like, what about lizards? You know, like, that makes no sense, right? Um, Sometimes we forget, and I've tried to remind you over and over again in this series, Hebrew is a poetic language. So what is it trying to say? If this is poetic language, what is it trying to say? I originally had a picture of a cobra up like this, and Darby said, don't put that in because I don't want to look like it. Look at a giant picture of a snake through the service, so I took it out. But if a snake is about to strike, does it look like this on the ground where it's slithering along? No, it comes up like this, so it can do a strike. So what God's curse is saying is, no snake, you're not going to be in a striking position anymore. You're going to be flat on the ground. You're going to be in a defensive position. You're going to be on the run. You're not going to be up in a striking position. The snake in the dust is not on the attack. Jesus told his followers, after Peter said, you're the promised savior of the world, in Matthew 16, 16 16-19, Peter says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus answers Peter and says, upon this truth I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And you say, Alex, what does that have to do with snakes being on their belly and not being on attack? Uh, He says the gates of hell will not succeed against the truth of who Jesus is. Gates are defensive structures, not offensive structures. You don't uh, take ground with a gate. You hold ground with a gate. The bad guys are playing defense. Good is on the offense. That's what God said here in Genesis chapter 3. He says, evil, this representation of evil, this snake, uh, you're going to be on defense. You're not going to be making any more offensive plays. Our world is under siege, but not by the forces of evil. Our world is under siege by the forces of good who are on the march. Sometimes in American Christianity, we talk about the slow decline of organized religion in the West and the end of our Christian faith and we're like wringing our hands and we're like, oh no, there's not as many churches. Churches are closing down, it's all falling apart. The church of Jesus is booming in the world, like straight up booming. In China, millions, hundreds of millions of people are coming to say Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. In Iran, some people say Iran now has the fastest growing church in the world where it's illegal to be a Christian, where you could be killed, at the very least imprisoned for being a Christian. Africa, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is booming. The church is not receding. The church is on offense. It just isn't primarily white or educated or middle-class or American anymore. The light is invading, it's just breaking down gates on a different side of the planet. We're on the winning team, and he's already won because Jesus swallowed sin and death on the cross. So we have to talk about something here because this passage, this section, is often referred to as the curse because of the sin of Adam and Eve. So is curse here the consequence of sin or the punishment for sin? You say, Alex, why do I care about that? Well, because it makes God look very differently depending on which side you fall on and how you interpret this passage. In different schools of theological thought, take different positions, and then those different theological thoughts become interpreters, and when they interpret the Hebrew into English... They kind of have some nuances that lean a certain way. Like, is God punishing people for their wrong behavior here? Or is He merely explaining the consequences of their bad behavior? Let's put it into some modern, uh, a modern example. Let's say you tell your kid, don't touch the stove, it's hot, you'll burn your hand. And the kid walks over and he puts his hand right on the, you know, hot stove and burns it. And you say, what a bad kid you are, you are grounded because you burned your hand. That would be a punishment, right? Like you say, I told you not to do it, you did it, you got hurt, now you're being punished. There's some theological positions who feel like that's what God's doing here. Others, and I fall into this camp, believe that God is outlining the consequences of their actions. So It would be like this, God says, or the parent says, don't touch the stove, you're gonna burn yourself. Kid goes over, touches the stove, burns himself. God rushes over and says, hey, you burned yourself with us bandage up your hand, you're not gonna be able to play baseball now. I know you love playing baseball, but your mitt's not going to fit on your hand because you burned it. And so you're going to need time to recover before you can play baseball again. Rather than causing their hardship, sin caused the hardship, actually touching the hot stove. God just helped them understand that there were going to be consequences because of their actions going forward. That's how I interpret this passage. There are good, wonderful, loving um, scholars who take a different position uh, than this. But... How I see God as revealed through the person of Jesus, I see this not as God saying, these are the hardships I'm putting on you because you disobey, rather God saying, these are the consequences that you're now going to have to live with because you disobey. Um, so notice that the consequences that Adam and Eve have to deal with were directly tied to their mission. This is part of the reason that I think these are consequences rather than punishments. God didn't fire them from the reason that he created them for. What did he say? He said, I want, I'm creating you to spread order and beauty, to spread toe, to be fruitful and multiply throughout the world. That's what he told him in Genesis 1.28. That was the assignment of humanity, spread order and beauty, be fruitful and multiply. And that, that hasn't changed. He is just saying that now your job is going to be harder than it needs to be. Just like Michael Scott, you know, he always makes everything way harder than it needs to be. That's essentially what God's saying. Adam, Eve, you've got the same mission. Be fruitful and multiply. Spread beauty and order. You just made it so much harder on yourself than it needed to be. Now you're going to be fighting against all this stuff you didn't have to fight about before. Sin makes our lives, our purpose for existing, our destiny way harder than it needs to. Eve was still to be fruitful and expand the human species, but now it would be painful. She would butt heads with the patriarchy. Um, I'm of the position that this is not God saying, oh, Eve, because you did this, now men are going to rule over you. Instead, um, I think that this is him saying because of sin in the world, one of the consequences is that men aren't going to always see you and your daughters as co-equal rulers. They're going to think you're someone to be dominated instead of someone to work alongside with. Adam was still to spread beauty and order throughout the world, but now it would be hard work to make forward progress. You ever feel like this? You work so hard on something, you're like, I got almost nothing done. Like I feel like that some days at work, like I have all these projects that I'm working on um, at the art center, like it's an old building and I'm constantly working on different things. And some days I get to the end of the, the day or the end of the week and I'm like, I got nothing done. Like I worked all these hours and nothing moved forward in a meaningful way. God says that's a consequence of sin in the world. Every step forward feels like two steps back. They still had the same assignments to spread beauty and order into the world, but sin meant that now they were fighting against the gravitational pull of death. Now God had warned them previously that eating from the tree of knowing good from bad would result in death. Death is sin full grown. James 1.15 says, sin when it is full grown always gives birth to death. Now a tadpole is a baby frog, right? We know that. A caterpillar is a baby butterfly. A pichu is a baby pikachu. I have to get at least a Pokemon reference in every couple of weeks. You know? um, every sin is baby death. Genesis 5, we're not going to get to it in our series, but it gives us this long list of names. It says Adam and Eve lived, and they had these kids, and then they lived, and they had these kids, and then they lived. And then there's one reoccurring line over and over again in Genesis 5 and then they died and then they died sin just kept killing people and it just keeps killing people today so what is death death means nothing good can stay everything good your most beautiful moment the most wonderful experience the your favorite food everything gets stolen or lost or broken it decays is destroyed. Death is the great thief in our world, and death is just sin grown. Uh, the most beautiful flowers fade, the most brilliant minds fail, our most loved ones pass away. And what a sobering place to come to in a message. But this is where Jesus or where God steps in and He brings us the first mention of the gospel. In the Bible, did you catch it, when we read through, he says, hey, this woman is going to have an offspring and he is going to strike the head of the snake. This image of evil, you'll strike his heel, but he's going to crush your head. The gospel literally means good news. And in chapter three of the Bible, right in this first section, we have the first gospel, this first promise that god is going to do away with evil this is what good writers call foreshadowing when you mention something way before it happens um, now remember that this is written to ancient israelites who had just left 400 years of slavery in egypt okay and so they're reading this they were the first ones to read genesis uh, moses leads them out of the wilderness they encounter yahweh up on a mountain moses writes all these things down spending weeks and weeks with yahweh up on this mountain The people decide, though, that they want to go back to Egypt and be slaves. And God's shown up in all these dramatic ways. He's provided for them. They walk through the Red Sea when it was parted, like Darby talked about. And Yahweh is like, I rescued you to be a platform for my special person who's going to save the world. And they're like, yeah, we want to go back to Egypt and be slaves. We don't want that grand destiny that you have for us. Uh, I think it's a good reminder for all of us, don't abandon your destiny just because you're currently crossing a desert. There's a promised land on the other side, but they want to go back and all of a sudden poisonous snakes come into the camp. They come into this uh, poisonous snakes and uh, the people start getting bit and they're poisoned and they're dying and the people start praying and begging God to deliver them. And God tells Moses, take wood from a tree and fashion a bronze snake. Hanging dead from the tree and put it in the camp. And everyone who looks at it and believes will be healed. That's this weird little story that we get as the Israelites are leaving Egypt and heading towards the promised land. Um, and so some people are like, no, I'm not going to look at it. I don't care. And they actually die from the poison snakes. And others, they go out and they look at this tree with this dead bronze snake hanging on it. And uh, all of a sudden they're healed from their poisonous wounds. They had to immediately think of this passage in Genesis 3. A snake crusher would come from the woman. God says here that there's going to be two lines of humanity, like some are going to side with the snake, and some are going to side with the woman. Um, And the snake would pierce the feet of the woman's descendant, but those heels would crush the head of evil and sin and death forever. Jesus would be nailed to a cross with the iron fangs of Roman nails. He would hang on the cross— but it was the snake that was dying. He was killing sin and death. Sin and death were beating themselves to death against the source of life. They put Jesus in the ground, but he couldn't stay dead. What he left dead in the ground was sin and death. He left sin and death defeated and rose triumphant. So death no longer has the last word in our story, in your story, in your loved one's story, in our world. Death is now a comma, not a period. In Jesus we live and his life lives in us so that we will live Again. So you say, Alex, if that's true, why is everything still so jacked up? Like, you know, like watch the news, get online, like just look inside of yourself. If Jesus on the cross defeated sin and death, why do we have so much chaos in our world? Why is there so much chaos in me? That's a good question. We should ask that. When I was a kid, well, a teenager really, in high school, we lived in Nashville. This was our backyard. Um, So this was our backyard and we had this creek back here. This creek was full of snakes. Like we didn't know that when we moved into the house, uh, but this is no exaggeration. One summer we killed 30 snakes in our backyard. That's a lot of snakes for one summer. And most of them were copperheads. Um, Copperheads are extremely poisonous. They're terrible snakes to have in your backyard. Um, And so we killed a lot of snakes. Sometimes we use 22 rifles, sometimes we use shotguns, sometimes we use shovels and machetes. One time I used a bow and arrow. I'm really proud of that moment. I don't tell people that I missed 20 times. I used 20 arrows before I actually hit the snake. Uh, but anyways, we got real creative about snake killing when we had copperheads in our backyard. But it's Tennessee, what else do you gotta do? except You know, get creative about ways you kill snakes. Um, but there's something interesting I found out. When you cut off the head of a copperhead, the body continues to flail about. It doesn't just like fall dead and it's dead. The body, the muscles continue to spasm and move. In fact, a dead snake's head can continue to bite. And it's actually more dangerous than a living snake's bite. Because when a snake is alive, it looks at its prey and says, oh, I need so much venom to paralyze that prey, It kind of sizes up its prey. When the body is dead, the head actually becomes more dangerous because no longer does it regulate the venom and it will pump more venom into you than if the snake was actually alive. So sometimes we would kill a snake, but we still had to be cautious of it because it could bite us and it could actually be more dangerous than ever before. Some snakes will continue to have muscle spasms, and the head will continue biting hours after death. The cross was the victory over sin and death and evil. The snake was killed, but the snake can still bite. Evil is in its death throes, but a snake cornered and killed is still dangerous. Sin is dying in us. Sin is dying in our world. Evil doesn't win. Don't side with the defeated snake. Side with the snake crusher who was pierced on our feet. Look to the cross. Like the ancient Israelites who looked to the dead snake on the tree and lived, we look to Jesus and live. We become students of the way that he lived and loved because we believe that being his apprentices spreads hope, beauty and order and goodness throughout the world. See, we go back to our original purpose as human beings. It's why we exist, to spread the goodness of life and community with God throughout the world. It pushes back the defenses of darkness. It spreads the light of the garden. It expands the borders of his coming kingdom, one person at at a time. The snake is dead. Evil, death, sin is dead. The king is coming. The curse is broken. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for coming into our world to rescue us. You didn't leave us trapped in bondage to sin and death, but you came and you swallowed death, whole. You took it to the grave and left it there and rose triumphant. Thank you that our world no longer has a bad ending to our story, but it has a good ending because you finished off our greatest foe. God, forgive me for so often my selfish, destructive behaviors, my sin are little deaths that I'm sending into the world. God, help me to live and love like you so that I spread goodness order and not chaos and darkness. And I pray all these things.